And I remember thinking and making this decision, I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night and have to go down the stairs and put my leg on. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today the topic is sarcomas, which are a rare soft tissue and bone cancer. Our guest is Joel Mayerson, one of the world's leading sarcoma surgeons and the director of the James Sarcoma Program. And in the second half of this podcast, we'll meet Jared Sylvester, one of Joel's patients. Joel is a leader in several types of amazing types of sarcoma surgery, such as an expandable femur prosthesis, something that's called rotation plasty that's really pretty revolutionary, and a new shoulder surgery that replaces the actual shoulder socket. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. So let's start with a little background. Give us an idea of what are sarcomas and what do you do as a, as a sarcoma, sarcoma uh, surgeon? Sarcomas are a type of cancer that starts in the tissues in your arms and legs, so in your muscle, in your tendons, your nerves, your bones. And they really are the, instead of lung cancer, breast cancer that are in your other bodily organs, they are in the components that make up your arms and legs. They unfortunately destroy the tissue that they arise in, and most of them need to be removed surgically. And so when we treat them, they leave a functional deficit or a potential functional deficit that we have to correct in order to try to have someone be functional uh, once we remove a part of their arm or leg. Right. When you say a a functional deficit, you literally have to cut away pieces of bone, muscle, muscle tissue. Correct. Wow. And that, and depending on the size of it, I take it that's the more function can be lost. Correct. So sometimes they're very, very large, um, even have to remove an entire bone every now and then. Uh, which you can imagine leaves a, a very large deficit that you have to try to correct surgically. When, when you say very large, is that we're talking a walnut, a baseball, a softball? Like what's what can they range from? Uh, the smallest sarcomas are an inch, and the largest one I just took care of was 45 centimeters. So 40 centimeters is 16 inches. So it's about 18 inches. Where was what part of the body? That was, was that? the entire thigh bone. So you had to remove the entire thigh bone of a patient. Correct. And replace it with? Uh, an entire metal thigh bone. Wow. Uh, there, there are two options in that case. You can use an entire metal thigh bone, or if someone doesn't want to have a very large reconstruction, then that would require amputation. Wow. So, oh, I hadn't thought of that. People have that option. Correct. What, what do most people Most to people do? want to try to yeah. do a, a limb-sparing operation uh, and see what it does and how it works for them. And then if for some reason that they're not happy with it or they're not as functional as they like, they, they do have an option to have an amputation later. Um, probably that's happened once or twice in my 20-year career. So and, it's not very often. And by coincidence, that the limb-sparing surgery is what Jared had that we're going to talk about later. Correct. So, again, sarcomas are rare. And we've talked before. I, I looked this up. There's about 13,000 a year. Correct. And they... And they tend to be younger patients, it seems like. Soft tissue sarcomas usually happen in older patients. Bone sarcomas happen in younger patients. Oh. And so we really don't know why. There's yeah. a difference in how they form in, in specific organs. But they're, of those 13,000, there are about 3,000 bone sarcomas that probably two-thirds of those are in teenagers. And then soft tissue sarcomas that form in the nerves and muscles uh, and fatty tissue, there are about 10,000 of those. And that's uh, what 
patient age is that again? Those are usually in older They're, folks, okay. so usually somewhere 50 and up. Wow, so that's quite a range of patients that you have, young yeah. and then old. And We call it cradle to grave. Cradle to grave, wow. And, and because you often see younger patients, you're connected and work with people at Nationwide Children's? Yeah, I, I, I work <clears throat> at Nationwide Children's. My, my partner has taken over uh, a lot of the role at Nationwide because I have a larger administrative role at the James currently, um, but I, I still do work over there. Because in, in addition to being director of the sarcoma program, you also have another administrative function. You're Correct. So I'm, I'm also the administrative director of the operating room for the James. For all operations? Correct. Wow, that's that's a lot of operations. We do. We do uh, probably about uh, somewhere between 950 and 1,100 operations a month at the James for all our entire cancer program. That's more, that's more than 10, 12,000 a year. Correct. That's amazing. Give me a sense. You're not that old, but I can imagine that from the beginning of your career to now, where have we come or where have you and others come in terms of saving limbs, saving function, improving quality of life with sarcoma surgery? So the, the implants uh, that we use to, when bone sarcomas are removed, we can put in a metal bone to replace the bone that's been removed. Uh, and we've really gone through a, a lot of different changes. Um, in young pediatric patients, that are very young, seven, eight years old, they need not only to have their bone replaced, but they need to have their bone grow with them as they age because they have a lot of growth remaining. So when I started my career, when we put a a growing implant in, we had to, a year or two later after they had grown, we had to make a skin incision in the operating room, open it up, take a ratchet and ratchet their bone longer close it back up, and then a year or two later, do it again. And depending on how young they were, you could do five or six times. Until they stop growing. Correct. Because I'm t- I take it if, if the left leg is the one with the cancer, the right leg is going to grow at a regular rate where the left leg wouldn't grow, the bone wouldn't grow because it's, it's now a metal Correct. Thing. Okay, wow. And that's the expandable femur prosthesis. Correct. Okay. How recent is that? And, and so the, we had expandable prosthetics, but we used to have to do those operations. So I started uh, practice oh. in 2000, uh, and we had to open those up. In 2001, 2002, uh, one of the, I did the first non-invasive uh, total femur replacement in the United States, where that was one of the early prosthetics where there was a metal bar inside the prosthesis, and then a spring was compressed and encased in plastic. Once everything was all closed up, once we needed to make the patient's leg grow longer, we would stick a magnet outside their skin. That magnet would heat up the bar. It would melt the plastic. The spring would expand, and their leg would get longer. That, that's amazing. And so we could do that without surgery at that point. Uh, those worked well for about seven or eight years. And then a newer technology was developed. Um, the problem with that technology is there was heat generated with a magnet, Right. And, and the kids Good. couldn't, they, they felt the, the heat. And so we couldn't do that in the office. We had to go to the operating room. So another technology developed that we could do it with magnets. And so you could stick a magnet on their thigh and you could reverse the polarity or, or change the polarity of the magnet to make it longer or shorter. And it's not, there was no heat generated during that procedure. So the benefit of that is we could take the kids in the office 
stick a magnet around their leg, connect it to a box, and we could make their leg longer in the office, and they could do it on, them, on themselves. Can you literally put the do that procedure and, and watch a leg? You can lengthen. Yes. How much are we talking? A half an inch? Yeah, an inch? Pro- probably we do about a half an inch at a time. And that would be like you know, every year or two and in relation to the other leg? Depending on when they're growing. Yeah. So, you know, uh, people don't, when they hit their growth spurt during their teenager years, they grow more oh, than yeah. what they do when they're younger. So it could so, be two inches in a year. Could be, yeah. Wow. So that's amazing. So that's the expandable femur prosthesis. And this rotation plasty is, I, I mean, even more amazing. So rotation plasty is a modified amputation where patients who are very, very active have an option where they can continue to do heavy-duty activities. One of the challenges with the metal bones is they're made of metal and plastic, and they eventually will wear out just like the transmission in your car. And have and, to be replaced? Correct. And the only way to replace it is it's, a big surgical yeah. procedure. And so for people who are very, very athletic – or don't want to have several operations throughout the course of their life, we can do this special operation called rotation plasty. If you have a tumor in the end of your thigh bone, and we would do an amputation, you would need an above-knee amputation in order to remove everything and cure the cancer. If you use a prosthesis for an above-knee amputation, it takes about 70% more energy than normal to walk. If you can do a below-knee amputation, it only takes about 20% more energy to walk. And so you can walk and run faster and better because it, there's less extra energy you need to produce to be able to do those activities. But it all depends on where the, the, the can't, their sarcoma is Correct. on where you have to uh, amputate from. Correct. And so in the rotation plasty, either the end of the thigh bone or the top of the shin bone, the femur or the tibia, You can take that part out and you take out the whole middle part of the leg. You leave the nerve and the blood vessel attached and then you flip the foot around backwards and you make the ankle function like a knee. And so if your knee moves one way, if you think about it, your ankle moves 180 degrees opposite. If you move your ankle and turn it around the way your knee works, your foot can then function as a shin bone, your ankle can function as a knee bone, and then you, or knee joint, and then you can use a prosthesis that would be very similar to a below knee amputation prosthesis and only 20% more energy expended than 70%. So the ankle becomes the knee, and then the prosthesis, you would have a foot prosthesis. Correct. Artificial prosthesis, and the same way any amputee would have. How often or how rare is this to do this type it's of surgery? It's a pretty rare surgery. There are probably maybe 12 or 15 done per year in the United States. Um, you can imagine there are some cosmetic issues with it. Uh, it takes the right kid. It takes the right family yeah. to support them. Um, unfortunately, people are not always nice, and it looks a little different. Oh, and in so, terms of peer, peer, co- the peer group of this yep. kid. And so we have to make sure that we at least evaluate their social situation, that they're going to have the support to be able to utilize that in a fully functional way. And their family and support structure is going to enable them to do that as well. How many of have these types of rotation plasty surgeries have you done? So I've done 12. You've done every one that's been done in the United States? Those are, no, 12 to 15 per year. Oh, per year. I'm and sorry. And I've done 12 over a 20-year okay. career. Got it. Okay. So you're one of the, the small group of people who, who do this. Correct. How long does, how many hours does that type of surgery take? It usually takes us about six or seven hours. 
And in all these surgeries, we go above the cancer and below the cancer to make sure we get it all out. Okay. And so we really never see the cancer during the surgery because we want to make sure we stay far away from it to make sure it's all out and don't get too close. Safe margins. Correct. And so for the rotation plasty procedure, the biggest challenge is we have that extra length of nerve and blood vessel that we have to coil up and we need to make sure it doesn't get kinked or cause a problem with blood flow from the top to the bottom. And then we also have a size mismatch because your thigh is bigger than your calf. Oh, okay. And so yeah. when we're putting your calf and sewing it back onto your thigh, most people have a size differential that we have to correct as well. And so we have the plastic surgery doctors help us do that because that's normally what they do. They take tissue from other parts of the body and put it into a place where the cancer has been removed to reconstruct that soft tissue portion. And so we do the operation rotation plasty as a team. Usually my partner and I actually do the rotation plasties together. One of us will do the top part and one will do the bottom part. And that way we can cut down the surgical time, we can cut down the infection risk, and we can just do it faster and more efficiently. And then once we're done taking things out, the plastic surgeon will then help us put the plate and screws together so the shin bone and the femur bone can be reunited and we get the right rotation. And then they help us close the soft tissue envelope. The other thing I mentioned, and I bet there's a couple in addition, is this new shoulder surgery that actually replaces the shoulder socket. Because I know there's hip and knee replacement, but is, is shoulder uh, socket replacement a newer thing? So Yeah, it's a, it's a new thing. Uh, in the past and for the first 15-plus years of my career, if we had a uh, sarcoma in the shoulder, in the proximal arm, uh, in the shoulder joint itself, we could take the bone out and put a metal bone back in to replace it, but there wasn't a good way to replace the rotator cuff to make the shoulder functional. And so the arm, the elbow, and the wrist would work just fine, and the shoulder wouldn't function so well. Most people were pretty happy with that because their arm worked okay, and they didn't have cancer anymore. And so right. if you think about that, that's a pretty good outcome. But they didn't have that full range of shoulder Correct. motion. They couldn't reach the uh, cereal on the top shelf. And so my orthopedic colleagues developed something called a reverse total shoulder replacement. Uh, it initially started in, I think, France. And it what it did is it reversed your, normally your arm is the ball uh, and your shoulder blade is the socket. Right. And so they reversed that and created the ball on the shoulder blade side and the socket on your arm or your humerus side. What that did, it allowed your deltoid muscle to pull those two pieces together and allow it to move your arm instead of your rotator cuff. And so now, in the past three and a half years, we've started pioneering replacing the metal bone, but also replacing the socket, repairing the deltoid, the muscle that allows you to bring your arm over to the side and to the front, back to the metal bone, and we've realized that people get really good function back. And so I don't do just those arm bone replacements anymore. We now do what's called an oncologic reverse total shoulder replacement. Wow. So it seems like everything you do, there's sort of two goals. One is eliminate the cancer, and two is the best possible quality of life for the patient. Absolutely. That's really why I picked orthopedic oncology as a career. Um, my first time as a fourth-year medical student, on the orthopedic oncology rotation, I saw a patient that actually had the same surgery that Jared had. And they had their femur bone replaced and a metal knee uh, to reconstruct that. 
And I thought to myself, wow, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon and, and do all the functional benefits of orthopedic surgery. And I went into medicine to try to save people's lives. This allows me to meld both of those yeah. things in my career. And my wife will tell you I haven't stopped talking about it ever since. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to stop talking about it for a second while we take a break. And then we'll be right back and we're going to meet Jared and hear about his cancer journey. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back, and today we're talking about sarcomas with Joel Marison, and now I'd like to introduce everyone to Jared Sylvester, who I also just met earlier today. So, Jared, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, share, tell us a little bit about your, your cancer journey, what your life was like uh, before, and, and how you figured out that there was something wrong in your leg, and what led you to Joel? Yeah, um, I grew up in Columbus, so... I- I'm a diehard Buckeye, but, uh, you know, knew about the James growing up just because it was 10 minutes down the road, but uh, never had imagined ever becoming a patient there. Yeah, no one ever thinks that. Absolutely. Um, Went off to college. I went actually to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And during the beginning part of my junior year, I was 21 years old. I was a really active individual, working out a lot, training actually that year for a half marathon and started having some significant pain in my left knee. Um, not ordinary pain, not, uh, not pain that you typically expect when you're, you know, doing standard workouts, playing basketball on the weekends with the guys. So you knew what a sprain was and, or a pulled muscle and this was different. And it was way different even than what my buddies had talked about, you know, knee tears, MCLs, ACLs. Um, and so I, what, what was different about that pain? It felt like someone had a knife and was carving my bone. Um, it got to a point, you know, being 21, you think you're invisible, invincible. And you think it'll heal on your own. You don't have to go to the doctor. Absolutely. I was crawling up my stairs at my house in Miami and my buddy Saul and he said, Hey, you really need to get that looked at. And so I called my mom and of course moms take care of everything. So she immediately called a family friend of ours who's orthopedic surgeon and, um, had me come home for that weekend. It was fall weekend. He got an MRI scheduled and then we were at his house on Friday. That was a Thursday. I got my MRI. Um, that Friday we were at his house. With the, the, the house of the doctor? Yeah, just a family friend Fra- of ours. Okay. So um, we went over to their, their house, and he broke the news to us that uh, he's 99% sure it was rare form of bone cancer, osteosarcoma. And that was Friday. And on Tuesday, that's when I met Dr. Marison. So we were, I think, first appointment that morning – but, but before we get to that, what's that like when you're sitting there with I'm not some family members and someone says those you have cancer? Yeah, uh, especially at you know 21 20, yeah. to hear to hear those words anytime in your life is devastating, um, hard, hard to process. Obviously, in the moment, I just remember it was probably the most out of body experience I've ever had. Right? You hear I heard three words that. Uh, my family friend said, and he said, you know, malignant tumor, bone cancer, chemotherapy. 
and then and I was like, I know what those words mean, <laughs> but I've never heard them. You know, I I've, I've never I've never tried to process what that means. And so for me, at twenty one, I was confused. I we were all right. What does this journey look like? Is this is this going to be the biggest challenge we've ever faced? We have no idea. And so that was you said a Friday. And in twos, on the following Tuesday, you had an appointment with it with Joel. Yep, my whole family came in. Uh, all six of us packed in a <laughs> in a room. Doctor Mayerson has the probably the best bedside manner that I've ever met in terms of a doctor physician relationship. And you know, he gave us the whole time of day that we needed and answered all of our questions and was really frank about the oppor- opportunities that we had, the surgeries that he just went through. Um, so, yep. What's that like, Joe, when that first meeting with someone, when they ha- they've been diagnosed with cancer, they get referred to you, that, that's a life-changing meeting for people. How do you handle that? That's one of the most challenging parts of my job um, because people really, they know that there's a high chance that they have cancer, but they don't really understand what it is. They don't really understand what they're going to need to do to treat it and get help and what the journey's gonna be like. And so really that's the, the, the parts of the talk that we need to do. We need to explain what it is. We need to explain the, the natural history of the type of cancer. We need to explain what type of treatment options they're gonna have, and then try to get them comfortable with the stages of the process that they're gonna go through. And then often we'll try to get them to meet a patient and a family, match them up that have gone through a similar process because we can do that as doctors and tell them the medical side, but sometimes the personal side and the day-to-day life side, they need to experience from someone who's gone through that journey on their own. Jared, did you have someone that that you were able to talk to? So a couple individuals that were, you know, adolescent, young adults, my age, we were all diagnosed within, you know, five to five to 10 days of each other, it felt like. And so we kind of went through treatment together and experienced the journey and the hardships together. So you sort of had two support groups, your family, and it sounds like led by your mom, and then your other fellow cancer patients. Absolutely. Yeah, my family's been nothing but a blessing, you know, alongside me in this journey, and I wouldn't be here today without them. And um, it it takes a village to go through something like this, and I'm thankful for the support system that I have. And chemo brain is real. (laughs) Dr. Marison can (laughs) talk you, you know, the the crazy stories that he hears or – um, you know, the, the not just the out-of-body experience, but also the chemo that you go through. It, it zonks you pretty good. Now, Joe, when you um, met with Jared and saw his MRIs, like what, what, what kind of cancer, where was it, what was your plan? So Jared, as he said, had a cancer in the end of his thigh bone, uh, just above his knee. Um, it was osteosarcoma. And so I try to be very honest with people and tell them, I'm pretty sure that's what this is. Uh, we need to do a biopsy to confirm it, and then we need to do some more imaging tests to make sure that it hasn't spread anywhere else. And at that point, um, we go through the treatment process that they're going to need to have chemotherapy for three months, recover quickly their counts from their uh, white blood cells so they can fight infection because the chemotherapy knocks those down. Then they need to have a window for surgery. We take out their cancer and do their reconstruction that we've talked about in detail uh, with the family and the patient. And they're my partner in choosing because we give them options, and they pick the best option that they feel is going to be best for them. 
And then when they've recovered enough from their surgery, they need to start the back half of their chemotherapy. While they're doing that, that's a really tough part because they're excited, their cancer's gone, and hopefully they're cancer-free. But they're still getting this medicine that makes them feel bad, but they have to do physical therapy to do their rehab at the same time. And that's a tough part of the journey as well. Now, before we get to that, what were your, Jared, what were your surgical options and why did you choose what you chose? Yeah, I mean, the, the surgery options that we had available were the three that Dr. Marison described before. These are the, the limb salvage, which is what I went and decided to move forward with, the full leg amputation above knee or, or the below, which is the rotation plasty. What does my lifestyle look like? I have no idea after cancer. Because we all believe that, you know, there's hope after cancer. So what is my life going to look like if I don't have my leg? And I remember thinking and making this decision, I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night and have to go down the stairs and put put my leg on or kind of in and out of the shower or things like that. Um, It just, I don't know, that was an option that I didn't want to face. And uh, I thankfully had the option to do the limb sparing, uh, limb salvage. So with your limb salvaging operation, it, it, you removed it above the, from above the knee or below? Is it? So Jared had the end of his thigh bone removed. So just above. So his cancer was just above, above his, his knee. left knee. Correct. Okay. And then when we remove that segment of bone, in order to reconstruct it with a metal bone, we have to anchor that with a, a metal rod going towards the hip into the remaining thigh bone and then a metal rod down below into the shin bone, and then there's a hinge between those two, between the metal bone and the part that goes into the shin bone, so you can bend your knee. So it's an it's a artificial femur, knee, shin bone. Correct. And so we call it an oncologic total knee replacement. So when older folks have knee replacements for arthritis, they have a cap on the end of their thigh bone, a cap on the top of their shin bone, and a plastic in the middle. The difference is we replace a large segment of the bone on top or on on the shin bone we can do too. How many inches in your case was it replaced in above and below the knee? Uh, I think Jared's is probably J- about Jared, half his half his thigh bone. Jared's yeah. pointing at his leg now and they're they're kind of remembering. So <laughs> about six or eight inches each each way or that's even, probably pretty close. Wow. What I, I mean what do you remember of the surgery or of waking up and what was that like with like a new leg? Yeah. Uh, you got to learn how to walk again. Right. Um, I was pretty, uh, I don't know, pretty, pretty sure that everything was going to be okay. But I remember that's the optimism of youth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I trust this man too. I mean, Dr. Mason is phenomenal. One of the best in the world at what he does and to have him 10 minutes down the road and have the opportunity to have him handpicked as our surgeon was uh, the, the greatest blessing. So, you know, the, the times that we spent together walking through the surgery, walking through the procedure, I felt incredibly confident that he and his team would get the job done, get me able to walk again. But uh, I remember that morning we were sitting in the waiting room, right? It's early morning. I think we were one of the first surgeries. And I remember having the conversation uh, with Dr. Mayerson. He said, look, if something goes wrong with your leg, cancer spreading, some some mishap happens, then there is a chance, a very, very, very small, slim chance that we would have to amputate during the operation. That you could wake up m- missing your leg. And that was I, that was and, like the last thought I had before I put yeah, the, that, the that, anesthesia in. Yeah. I was How can like, you not think Lord, please let yeah. them save my leg. <laughs> wow. 
And they did. Absolutely. Or Joel did. Thank you. <laughs> Thankfully, that's never happened in my career. That part where I wasn't planning to do an operation or an amputation. But. Well, thank goodness. And then you also had to get chemo after. Yeah. Chemo before and after. And so we did like 10 weeks of chemo before and then six months of chemo afterwards. So how long does it take after the surgery in the midst of chemo before, I don't want to say normal because it's a new normal, but how long does it take before you're comfortable and, and reach sort of your, your activity level that you're able to kind of carry forward with? Yeah, I would say there's two components. Obviously, the, the physical side of like regaining the strength with my leg. I was non-weight bearing ever since the diagnosis. So I was in crutches or on a wheelchair um, before the surgery. And then after the surgery is a lot of intensive uh, physical therapy, you know, breaking up that scar tissue, making sure that you're rebuilding that strength, that the muscles can actually fire again, and uh, you're learning how to walk. And so from that side, from the physical aspect of regaining my strength in my leg, um, that took me, a, you know, a good nine, nine months to really feel comfortable walking and going up and down stairs and doing any strenuous type of movement with my leg. And then from, from that, a year after that was when I felt like, okay, I'm back. Like I, I can't run anymore, but I, you know, I can work out. I can do these other things. Um, but from a, a chemotherapy side of thing, I just didn't have energy, right? Yeah. I mean, you, which makes the physical therapy harder. Yeah, but I take it you were pretty motivated. Yeah, I mean, I told, I remember telling my physical therapist, I said, uh, I want to hate you when I'm <laughs> when I'm through with this. So you do your job, and I will I will love you forever if you give me the ability to. To read a putt on the green, I mean, I remember hearing those words from Dr. Mayerson. He said, I don't know if you're you're going to be able to bend down like that. Oh, that's right. You'd have to bend down to to pick up your ball after you, you sink a long putt. <laughs> <laughs> if that, now, I also heard that you were able to ride a bike again. And tell us about that. And perhaps you and I heard you, well, you did tell me, you and Joel got to ride together. Yeah. Yeah. So without running... Um, you know, biking has been a, a great outlet for me. So Pelotonia, obviously most everybody knows what the green arrow means in Columbus. And it means so much more to those of us that are involved in the cancer community here. And, uh, you know, have an opportunity to ride in Pelotonia. It's pretty amazing. And yeah, Dr. Marison and I, a couple years back, we linked up and got a chance to ride the 50 miles together. And, um, Definitely favorite experience of Pelotonia, uh, riding Pelotonia with the doctor that saved my life. Unbelievable opportunity and uh, just a great blessing to kind of push each other towards towards the finish line. <laughs> What's that like for you, Joel, to ride with a patient who has this quality of life where they can do such a thing? Oh, it's fantastic. I, I've ridden every year at Pelotonia, and that was certainly the my most favorite year. Um, Jared was kicking my butt, so it was great <laughs> okay. to see that my my uh, handiwork had allowed him to do that. <laughs> now, what year was your surgery? My surgery was January of tw- 2011. Do you remember the date? January 19th. I was going to say, everyone remembers that date. Do you celebrate that date every year? or It's my sister's birthday, so I... Oh. I um, You've used, usurped her birthday. I have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. Uh, I celebrate, you know, different, different um, landmarks across the... Across the years, um, I was diagnosed October 15th, 2010, um, January 19th, 2011, February 4th, 
2011 was when we received the pathology report back. The good with the good news with the bad with the good and bad. We got it, but it didn't die as much as we wanted. Oh, I'm not sure what the, what does that mean? Um, yeah, I mean. So when the, when we give the patients chemotherapy, we want the tumor to be at least ninety percent dead, right? Uh, and that's generally a better prognosis. Um, and unfortunately, Jared didn't get to that number. Uh, it still worked, but not as well as we had hoped. Um, but it's proof that uh, statistics are not uh, an individual person. Uh, Jared's obviously still here. He's a long-term osteosarcoma survivor. And, you know, he, that put him into a poorer prognostic group. Does, does this mean he still has – you still have some cancer cells in there or – No, it just means that um, we know that approximately 80% of osteosarcoma patients have microscopic metastasis in their lungs at the time of diagnosis. Oh, okay. And the way we know that is before we had chemotherapy, unfortunately, 80% of them died because of those microscopic metastases. The chemotherapy, the reason that it's used is because it kills those microscopic metastases. The amount of cell death in the cancer at the primary site is used as a surrogate for how much of those microscopic metastases are killed and we know that people that have less than 90% probably have a lesser chance that all of those microscopic cells are dead. But, but again, it's a statistic, not an individual person. We still have lots of people right. who have less than 90% who do just fine, just With as Jared, Jared like did. Jared. Now, does that mean you have to get, get, still come in on a somewhat regular basis to get checked just to be safe? Or Yeah, I'm usually, I think, six months, every six months, I'm still getting checked. What do they do every six months? Um, mine's pretty simple. It's a CT. Um, you know, once a year we'll do a we'll do an MRI and make sure that the hardware in my leg is still working fine. Um, CT, blood work, EKG, echo, just for the heart. But uh, you know, they're just looking at my lungs for a CT scan. I had a small recurrence uh, in my in my right lung, so I had a surgery uh, last January, two thousand seventeen. Excuse me. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, osteosarcoma, you know, is one of those things that you, it'll come back, um, you know, mostly all pretty much hundred percent osteosarcoma comes back in the lungs. Um, and mine came back in a small little tiny node and they just went in and removed it real quick. And now a different surgeon did that. I take it because that, or that's Correct. not your a thoracic specialty, surgeon because at the James, they have specialists in every, so a thoracic lung surgeon did that. And I mean, the, the good news is you're getting these scans, so you'll catch anything early and that they're continually coming up with new chemo, precision cancer, immunotherapies that, that are, are just changing the way they, they treat these things and, and cure these things. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I hope you're optimistic that you're going to be around for a long, long time. Now, at some point, does the, the I'll call it hardware, what you put into Jared's leg ever need to be replaced? It does. Uh, the average lifespan depends on a lot of factors. Physical activity, uh, how phys- much you use Physical it, activity, yeah. size of the patient, um, how well the body has adapted to the metal and plastic parts. Um, how you use it on a daily basis. And so typically for a distal femur replacement like Jared's, probably about two-thirds of them last 10 years. 
And so a third of the people have to have something fixed in that 10-year period. And then probably another third in the next five to 10 years after that need to have it fixed. Um, and it, there are different places where it can fail. And that's one of the conversations that we have at the time before we do the surgery to let the patients know that they're probably going to have another surgery at some point in their life uh, because they're so young. Now, Jared, you're you're just a pretty amazing person with your determination and passion and and your outlook on life. What what where's this come from, and how's your your cancer journey changed you? Yeah, my, I grew up my whole life with a great family and support system, and you know when you're 21 going through something facing life and death, um, it matures you in ways that you never imagined. And so, yeah, I mean, I I would say most of my journey has not been easy, uh, past, you know, 21. Um, not everybody has their own battle, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for my journey. I'm thankful for the perspective on life. It's given me, um, the friendships and the relationships that, uh, I'm afforded because of those perspectives and appreciation of life. And uh, as well, I just get to, you know, be impacted by so many others in this community. Um, you know, I'm, Volunteer as, you know, one of the hope guides at the James, volunteer at Children's Hospital, get to interact. And and hope is where you connect with other cancer patients. Yeah. It's like okay. a peer-to-peer mentor. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just incredibly fortunate to be in the spot where I'm at. I'm, my, I met my wife, a small little nugget. I met my wife. Our stories collide because of cancer and specifically sarcomas. Um, her mom, when we met, was in the midst of treatment for a sarcoma that she had. Um, and she has, uh, she lost her battle that year that we were dating. Um, but that was the reason that our hearts really connected and, and we fell in love was because my, I was able to emotionally, you know, connect with my wife and, and understand the pain and suffering that she and her family were going through and relate to her mom. Yeah, actually, my wife, uh, Melissa, and I are expecting, she's 38 weeks pregnant, which we, you know, through this journey, never thought would be possible. So we're ecstatic to welcome in our, our Christmas baby here soon. Congratulations. Yeah, cancer's changed my life. hundred percent changed my life, but uh, I, would, I wouldn't take it out of my life. I was going to say, you've, you've, it's changed your life. And I don't want to say for the better, because you'd never want to have had cancer, but you've, you've gotten stronger and and made the best of it absolutely and joel i take it when you said in your i think you said your fourth year of med school is when you decided this was the the field you wanted to go into and what you wanted to do that when we we sit here with jared that this is why (laughs) absolutely Uh, one of the 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 reason that i went into doing this is so i could allow save people's lives and to bring them back to function and be a normal uh, human being and and enjoy life and time with their family and you know you know getting to know Jarrett and watching his journey and the rest of my patients that's the biggest satisfaction I, I get uh, outside of my family um, is to to watch them be successful and, and get their life back and just be a normal person. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Jared, for sharing your your amazing cancer journey and and all you've learned and the and the strength you have and and Joel, thank you for for giving him that quality of life and and all you do for all of your patients. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, 
Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.